Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. Appreciate that. And welcome back from Israel. We both had the privilege of being there this week. And uh, one thing I did notice, by the way, and this is outside of the whole uh, of the whole Nefesh Benefesh thing, and obviously the, the short time I was there was dominated by that event, but now I'm getting it a little bit more. And I'm getting it from uh, people in hotels. I'm getting it from people on the street. I'm getting it from people in cabs. Um, as much as we think that tourism to Israel is such a key and such an important part of the economy and such an important part of the entire Israel-Diaspora relationship, the Israeli government in 2021 I don't think feels the same way. And keeping people out who might be bringing in COVID or one of its new variants is a much bigger priority. And by the way, to their credit, that's why I think we could say they've bent over backwards to allow people to move to Israel from the diaspora during COVID, but they have not bent over backwards to relax rules enough to make it really easy to visit Israel during COVID. What do you think of my assessment? Uh, It's true, and Israel's true in many countries. You saw Austria shut down today, other countries shut down, because they find that you you can't control who brings it in effectively, and you try to focus on control over the virus uh, spread. We see it amongst the children now and thank god it's usually not serious but it's uh, you know the variance and the the difficulty they have governments have in trying to control it because the economic costs beyond tourism are staggering and the um you know you just think of all the pcr tests and i think in the last month they've taken 15 because <laughs> <laughs> every time i went and what came from a country you know i had to go through this whole process again and again and then you know, it's an employment program for a lot of people, but it's, uh, you know, it's very costly in the administration of uh, the vaccines, et cetera, let alone the hospital costs and the loss of um, hours at work. So that every country is willing to sacrifice uh, tourism. Um, and, and in Israel's case, and in most others, they, they offer subsidies to the hotels and to the workers right. who were laid off. That makes up the bulk of the uh, of their losses right they, they feel bad for the cab drivers but that's but it's not enough they're they're trying to take care of as many people as possible in the industry but uh, it's not enough to reopen everything i just wonder in all seriousness if this was 20 30 years ago when the impression is that tourism was really an important revenue arm for israel you think it would have been handled differently or this is basically the way it would have been handled yeah i don't know what the science was then and the precautions that would have been taken uh, but, but we don't dismiss tourism is vital for Israel, and Israel was on the way to a record year before COVID broke out. You have to understand that it's the people, you know, see the hotels, they see maybe the cab drivers, but you have to think of the suppliers and, um, and the importers and the people who provide the services to hotels, uh, and then the visits to the, to the sites, which um, depend upon entrance fees or, you know, the people visiting, buying stuff that enables them to sustain them. It has ripple effect throughout the economy, aside from the psychological effect, that when the streets are empty, people feel isolated and alone. Yeah. And the, the political message outside the country that, uh, that people aren't coming to visit. Right. These, these are all ramifications of tourism that people generally don't 
don't assess when they think about what the losses are. All right, so, and I'll wrap it up with this, but the, the with the assumption, and I think this is the feeling I got from most people there, with the assumption that Israel's really not going to change their rules much in the next few months, we're, 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 we're likely not going to have a 2022 record-breaking year for tourism. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, well, I do think that the rules will change as people, as we see what happens over the winter months, when people anticipate an uptick, but uh, I don't think immediately we're going to see any real change. Yeah. What can you tell us about this deal that's uh, that's coming down? Israel, Jordan, and the UAE, what they're calling a solar energy water swap. And how unusual is it, if in fact it is unusual, for Israel and Jordan to be involved in uh, some type of agreement like this? Well, it's interesting that you picked up on it because very few people have it. I think it's very significant, and it goes along with a number of developments of this kind. And the more you build interdependency in the region, the more likelihood is that peace sticks and that people see the benefit of it and the uh, uh, relationships uh, extend. And people will see from this um, deal, which which you're about to sign, uh, it's a massive solar farm in the Jordanian desert, and what it will, the deal will make uh, was really an outgrowth of the Abraham Accords. And um, I know John Kerry made some phone calls to King Abdullah and Yair Lapid, and it's, it's expected to be signed on Monday in Dubai by the officials from the countries. It will increase uh, the relationship between Israel and Jordan, which in the last few weeks seems to have gotten much warmer and better as after a period of uh, you know, a lot of tension. But it will help ease the water crisis in Jordan, Israel will build a desalination plant. It will be powered. Electricity will come from the solar field. It will then enable water to go to Jordan from the Mediterranean. Jordan itself is too far to do it, to build a desalination plant in Jordan. And it was originally going to be signed at the COP26, uh, but Prime Minister Bennett asked to postpone it until after the vote on the budget because he didn't know what the reaction would be, but it's actually quite positive. And so Israel needs renewable energy, but doesn't have the land for massive solar farms. Jordan does. Jordan needs the water, can't build the desalination plants in the southern part of the country. Therefore, Israel's coastline much closer. Everybody benefits. Can we now say, I mean, to a degree they have been, uh, um, uh, informally because of the peace deal with Israel, but can we now say that Jordan is part of the Abraham Accords? I would say that uh, Abraham, uh, they've become a more integral part. In the recent exercise, the blue flag exercise, in which many countries took place, and which is one of the remarkable developments that almost nobody notices, the, the amazing amount of interaction that is taking place between various countries beyond the Abraham Accords with Israel in um, in military exercises. The blue flag exercise was an Air Force one, and the Air Force commanders from a number of countries, including the UAE, uh, participated. But what wasn't announced is that there were two jets from Jordan in the exercise, and we also saw the Fifth Fleet. We saw a carrier come to uh, a lot for a week doing joint exercises, We've seen at least a dozen different ones, which is really worth talking about. Uh, but this this is the biggest blue flag multinational air force exercise, 
And the fact that Jordan joined is really uh, important symbolically and practically. And, and I'm sorry. And that the countries and people ask why that what is the importance of it they learn to work together they integrate they learn each other's tactics but more importantly it's a message that is sent to iran that here are all the countries around you joining in this kind of exercise and then we had naval exercises with european countries and others joining as well it's a significant message and the fact that you have people coming together and you see the array of flags that, that were flying at some of these exercises, it's, it's a, a radical change. So I think Jordan is beginning to reach out in ways that it hadn't for a long time, and hopefully it it's really will bear significance. I wish I had it in front of me, but the, with all the enthusiasm you're describing, and, I, and, and uh, it, with all the enthusiasm you're describing, Jordan was hesitant. I read it somewhere. Jordan was hesitant to make too big of a deal about this. No, they but, kept it secret. That's what I'm saying, right. that it wasn't made public until people looked up in the sky and saw two Jordanian planes that you can't hide them when they're flying over you. And, you know, it's not an underground subway. But but the fact that they were there, UAE was there, others are there. Uh, I met with the Bahraini ambassador, and they're all talking in such upbeat terms. But, uh, yeah, I do think that uh, it's a significant change in the part of Jordan. Malcolm, not to get too philosophical, but just for a second, I mean, 25% 25% of European Jews say they're going to have to leave Europe because of anti-Semitism. We see what's going on in this country, yet Israel continues to to have warmer warmer relationships with their mortal enemies. It's, 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 it's an incredible dichotomy that's going on now. Right. And we should remember, look, things change, can change dramatically in the Arab world. There's no guarantees that come with, the, with right. the developments that have taken place. But the enthusiasm is growing. You know, the trade with, with UAE will, will reach a billion dollars this year, it's estimated. And remember, you're starting from almost zero. Yeah. And even countries that are not part of the Emirates Accords are reaching out. I know I speak to some of them, their representatives, and they all want ways to get into to the relationship um, uh, with Israel. Uh, the solar deal is only one look at Egypt and Israel doing joint stuff in the Sinai, uh, Israel and Jordan uh, working along the Syrian border in cooperation. Uh, really a lot of stuff at the same time. You see the flare-up in Gaza, the flare-ups in the West Bank. You see the the tensions that are increasing. These threaten Jordan as much as they do Israel. And, and, you know, the countries that are on the outside, some of them even who played a little bit of hostile roles, have approached us about wanting to be party to some of the things that are going on. Yeah. I would think that all of this would make Jews more comfortable around the world, like the state of Israel made Jews more comfortable around the world, like the IDF made Jews more comfortable around the world. It's funny that that we are in such precarious situations in the diaspora, and all this, you know, m- more of a warm relationship is happening in the Middle East. I think it's just... I, I pointed out many times, I think, that uh, in speeches, and that if you look at the world, anti-Semitism is growing dramatically here in Europe, in almost every country in Europe, the number of physical assaults increasing. The only place we see a decrease is in the Abraham Accord countries, yeah. where it's not yet good. And remember, you have six decades of inculcation of hatred, or right. seven decades. Uh, but now you see the changes and how people are greeted in these various countries and the um, uh, willingness to open up and, and rediscover Jewish institutions, the Bahrain, the shul that was, I don't know, 80 years, 100 years old, and in Muslim countries where they're now 
uh, emphasizing the Jewish history of 2,500 years. It's a, it is a change, and and uh, we hope that I certainly have the visions of how you we build on this, and we can change the whole region with it. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, it, it, I, I read somewhere this week that pay to slay is coming to an end. I'm wondering if one has to do with, first of all, is that true, which you'll tell us in a second. And then I'm wondering if this has to do with it, that if it, it, that even the mortal enemies of Israel realize that they better have a little bit of a different attitude toward things as as countries like Jordan and others keep warming up to Israel. No, I don't think it's true that pay to slay will end. It may be revised and therefore that they don't pay directly, but they, they find these indirect ways. But as far as I know, uh, till now, they have not, the PA has not decided to, to eliminate it. Quite the opposite. I saw statements by members of the government reinforcing it and saying this is our obligation to the martyrs and to their families. So I would be very surprised. I know that there is a lot of pressure being brought to bear on them and that money is being withheld from them which is the best incentive to get the Palestinians mm-hmm. to move, not on principle or, or, or values, but because, you know, the, the pocketbook and the unrest amongst the people is increasing, and this builds pressure on the, the central government that the, that the you know, young people especially who, who are not being employed, who talk about all the billions that come in that they never see, and there's a fear inside about a civil war for universities in, in the West Bank were, were closed. You don't see written up in the paper, but because of violent clashes, not with Israelis, but between them, between the clans, between the different student groups. And they, they, um, they even closed Al-Quds because of the, the, when, when the masked gunmen came there and started opening fire at the cars of students and lecturers. Uh, and it was a fight over a parking lot near the university. But it's reflective of the tensions. You know, 20 houses and businesses were born, were burned, in, uh, especially in Hebron, by mass gunmen. Again, reflecting this, this tension. And it's not because of Israelis living there or nearby. It's because there are no Palestinian security forces nearby. Yeah. So at what point does the PA make a, a, a sudden shift? Will it be when, uh, when Saudi Arabia is part of the Abraham Accords? Like, can something happen in that region of significance that would, in fact, get them to change their policy on pay to slay and other uh, anti-Israel sentiment? Well, one thing would be the end of Abbas's rule. You know, at his age, in mid-80s, you know, he's always uh, reported to be near death or at times, but or it, it could be political death, not just physical death. Right. But um, and he survives. Next? And, I mean, he's doing nothing for the country, for the people, for the, for the uh, community of countries in the region. He doesn't cooperate with them. They, they are all frustrated. They're all walking away. They're cutting their aid. So... Um, he, uh, I think that that is one potential uh, way, but I think it would lead to a period of real chaos, which is very dangerous for Israel because then you get, you know, people wanting to up the the toll in violence because they think that gains them popular support and popularity amongst the people. Um, so, uh, uh, from the internal situation, is really building pressure on them, and it can disrupt in in even more violent ways beyond the campuses in the cities, as we saw. It's, it's happening in Gaza, too, where there's massive uh, unrest amongst young people, and because they, they have no jobs, and they, uh, you know, the, even the vaccines, they go to the Hamas people first until the, the regular people get it. They see the disparities. 
so there are things that could happen that would lead to change, but also it leads to instability. And who knows who's next, right? With Nobody knows. Right, with the most interesting story I, uh, that I think I saw, which was, and it's interesting, they didn't get negative reaction, was that Bassem Eid, who's uh, called a human rights activist, a Palestinian rights activist, filed a complaint in the, the Division of Human Rights here in New York against uh, Kanapko, which is um, which is U.S. Division of Unilever, against Ben and Jerry's, <laughs> charging <laughs> that it's counterproductive to peace and creates hatred. And and he, and he said the gangsters behind the BDS movement are causing a lot of damage to the Palestinians. And yet, of course, that will not make the New York uh, Times. Oh, <laughs> no question about that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. The drone strike on the United States military base in southern Syria last month was apparently retaliation by Iran for Israel's strikes in Syria. Is this, in fact, a way to bring the United States into this uh, Iranian-Israel war? No, they know that the United States is not going to uh, engage directly we you know we have a minimal presence of number of troops in Syria and Iraq and their presence though is very significant the goal there is to drive them out is to force public opinion and pressure the administration <clears throat> withdraw our presence which is symbolic but very significant and right now this is a very complicated situation we could use the rest of the next 2 hours just about Syria because you have Russia Iran and Turkey fighting each other each one, or every combination of two, trying to force the third out, and the um, the raids that are taking place. Israel continues, obviously, to target, uh, but in very specific ways, shipments that Iran or stockpiles that Iran has sent of weapons to in Syria on its way to Hezbollah or to be used. In fact, this week they they caught guys with bags of cash. Do uh, you know that? Bags of dollars in southern Syria that Iran was sending in to pay for people, Iranians, Pakistanis, Iraqis, others, to buy them houses because they're really dealing in ethnic cleansing and trying to create facts on the ground before there's any kind of resolution because they all see that Assad is, is, is going to remain. And Assad wants to try to get out all of these guys from his country, you know, and regain control over the whole thing. Uh, and Russia obviously wants to try to force the others out as well. It's funny. It's an immigration situation. It's an immigration problem. One power against the other. One ready to fund housing for these people, and the other one wanting them out of the country. Well, they want them out, but but they have been doing this all along. They, mm. they really ethnically changed, bringing in all these Shiite populations yeah. and the fighters because the fighters who are fighting for for iran there are not iranians they don't die for them they they, they hire these other people to be to to die for for them so the um, the internal situation in syria has really become uh, uh, very bad and it's obviously very tense um and the uh, growth of the uh, Turkey is continuing going after the Kurds. They're obsessed about the, the Kurds. The Iranians want to retain their position, especially near the Golan. We know that they built up these militias and are continuing to sponsor them and Hezbollah. So while Syria has gained control over more and more areas, there's a lot of fighting still going on. There are still populations, you know, uh, resistance populations in the areas they do control. 
but the battle is really between all of the parties uh, today. And the United States, I mean, just to reiterate what you said, because the reaction that you had was that they're, they're not really being drawn into this and that they'll continue to monitor things on a diplomatic level, I assume. They are working on a diplomatic level. I mean, I think people accept the fact that Assad is not going to be driven out. Right. And the question is, how do you create a stable situation? Because further destabilization means millions more of uh, refugees. Jordan actually opened its border with Syria after being closed for five years or so at a big loss to them because they can't export goods to to Syria. But they also closed it because a million and a half people from Syria have come into Jordan and are refugees there. Plus, you have all over, and the Syrian population that goes to Turkey, and, and Erdogan has weaponized the Syrian pop, uh, immigration, and he threatens Europe with it all the time, that he will open the gates and just flood Europe with more refugees, let alone exciting the millions of Turks who live in, in uh, Germany. Uh, you know, they say if he gets a cold, Germany gets pneumonia. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really a serious situation, because that's how he can uh, enforce some of the... Uh, of the goals that he's instituting, and, and, you know, it's pretty radical. We did have the positive development this week with the couple from Israel. Uh, And I think he also feels the pressure of being left out of a lot of developments in the region. Oh, that's interesting, because if... if, um, I don't know how another leader would have handled it, but he certainly was... I mean, we could use the term holding them hostage, right? It, It was a hostage situation. It's not completely clear. Uh, I spoke to Turkish officials, even as late as yesterday, and um, one is, I I heard from one who's very close to Erdogan that he was very angry about it. He did not know this was not his decision. Uh, And it was more complicated about what pictures and stuff, but nothing clearly that amounted to espionage. And, you know, like tourists sometimes get carried away. Things happen. I'm not saying they did. I'm just saying that that's People should always remember uh, when they travel to be careful. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> in, his, in, but his, in Israel, a friend of mine who's a resident of Israel was once taking pictures of the president's house for a book that he was writing, and he was taken in by authorities and, uh, and questioned. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have, have to strange get, friends. <laughs> well, you have to be care- <laughs> but you're right. You have to be careful. You don't, you don't think that something you're doing innocently could be perceived you know, in the, exactly the opposite way. We actually got reports of somebody taking pictures here of infrastructure and Jewish schools, and police arrested him, and it turned out that he was a uh, he was potentially dangerous. And so he, we and, don't and here, it. It, just, everybody's not a tourist, but you're right that that's the real message. Right, but just to be clear, because we have people everywhere uh, here means Brooklyn. When you say that, you're talking about Brooklyn, New York, where that happened. Um, it it ha- actually happened along the East Coast. Oh, on the but, East Coast. Oh, here, meaning in the United States. Got the United States. <laughs> but, but it was years ago. And, uh. and But it does. we continue to get reports, and, you know, you can't dismiss it because that's what terrorists do. They, they scope places. They look at it. It doesn't mean everybody taking a picture of a building is, right. is a terrorist. And we don't overreact. Can you... Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, can you tie up the previous issue for me for a second? Because the, the Jordan development and the, you know, the movement, again, uh, to the warmer relationships that we were talking about earlier... Uh, the rumors about Saudi Arabia becoming an official partner in the Abraham Accords. I mean, I, I don't think there's, I don't think that there's a uh, a more open secret than that one. But none, nonetheless, there never seems to be a timetable. Never seems to be a reality. Never seems to be a desire uh, in Saudi Arabia to get it done, so to speak. Does any of this bring it closer? Uh, 
you're right about there not being a timetable. Uh, some people say the timetable is when the king leaves, that he is very much opposed to it. MBS, uh-huh. his, his son is, is in favor of it, but I mean, there's no guarantees about what succession what will take place. Um, uh, but there there is a difference of views. They, they do, and there is increasing interaction without recognition yet. Right. Uh, I think the interaction is more important now than than the, the formal recognition thing, right. at this stage. But it will, there are other countries like Oman and others. But everybody has reasons why they don't want to go all out. But will engage in increased trade. Will engage in other exchanges um, on an increasing level. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia is a complicated country. Remember that uh, the, the the internal situation. You know, he has a lot of opposition, uh, and I think he's a. Uh, He's reluctant to make the move. When I spoke to him even years ago, he he was very much planning on it and want to benefit from Israel's technology. I mean, it's not just a one-way street. They they gain a lot, and Mm -hmm. certainly you see the tourism that uh, is chomping at the bit. You open the gates of Saudi Arabia, you'll probably have 100,000 Israelis the first week going there. Wow. And and look at at the expo. Uh, Tens of thousands of Israelis have visited the expo in the UAE. Right. So there are... There's immense. Uh, there are a lot of benefits to come from it, but they're all afraid of Iran. They're afraid of it being of, of Iran exploiting this with the population and and exciting them against the, the government. So they have a variety of considerations. I think it, it takes a lot of courage, and hopefully it'll be there to to make the move, the bold move. Morocco did it, and they seem to be very pleased with the results. And flights are starting. You know, daily flights between. Mm-hmm. Um, Morocco and Israel, as there are between UAE, Egypt, the relationship seems to be warming up. Countries where it was a peace, a cold peace, see from the examples of the UAE that you got to make it a warm peace. You got to involve the people. You have to see the benefits. You have to enhance it. Understood. What do you think of the uh, um, of the candidacy of Gaddafi's son for president of Libya? Um. Well, they think they've been rehabilitated, and Libya is such a mess. You know, you have warring factions. You have uh, four, three or four countries on one side and three or four countries on the other side, Italy included, and um, uh, Turkey and, and Iran and others are all playing a role there. Uh, it's very destabilized. You have uh, Haftar and his um, his son stopped in Israel, by the way, on the way from the UAE back to Libya, and offered diplomatic recognition in exchange for arms and other things from Israel, uh, so it's a it's a very fluid situation. People can announce their candidacies. Nobody knows how what the seriousness of that will be. Uh, Gaddafi uh, still had his adherents, uh, but uh, the son, whom I actually met in years ago, um, I don't know that he has a real political base to do it. It's, it's a it's a reflection, though, of the fluidity of the situation in in Syria that the. You know, the General Haftar's forces, you know, there are constantly conflicts going on between them. Egypt obviously has a big stake in the outcome, and Turkey, others. Uh, so I, I wouldn't, you know, look at just the headlines. It's just the reality on the ground that's going to matter. Um, Malcolm, um, nine years ago, a book came out questioning the um, massacre at Darya Sin. And it seemed like it was accepted as a you know legitimate work. I, I can't remember everything about nine years ago, but uh, but I remember that uh, at least was uh, allowed to be discussed. Uh, a book comes out this week on the same topic, and it's completely canceled. And the reaction on social media is 
you know, to uh, to the point where I don't know if the publisher might even regret having published the book. That's how bad the reaction has been. In addition to that, we see what the BDSers are trying to do with Justin Bieber and trying to get him to not go to Israel to perform. Mm-hmm. We see that organizations uh, under the name Jewish Voice for Peace and many other creative names that I'm sure you're more familiar with than I am are inviting outrageous individuals to be their guest speakers when it comes to um, uh, to their events. I know that, that not all of this is related completely, but to me it seems in a general way as one big topic about what's happening out there uh, in the world vis-a-vis Jews and Israel. What could you tell us about uh, about any of this? Well, first of all, BDS is a vehicle for anti-Semites, for anti-Israel. It's not a question of economic justice. It's not a question of, of any other beneficial outcome of it. It's, it is anti-Semitism. It's, it's discrimination and prejudice against a particular country. It's the collective Jew. It, it's a way of giving expression that people deem legitimate that you call for this kind of boycott, but it really challenges Israel's right to exist, that nobody should fool themselves about it. That's why the Ben and Jerry's and all these things are important, um, that that it's a message. And once you allow this kind of cancer to proliferate and, and you don't um, challenge it, then it's it, it, it only continues to be a, a greater and greater challenge. I saw a letter that representatives of uh, Peace Now sent to, to uh, important leaders uh, asking them to sign a petition against Governor Hochul in New York and against the uh, actions being taken uh, by uh, DiNapoli, controller, say controller, against Ben and Jerry's and against you know removing the funding uh, from uh, owning of ownership of uh, stock in Unilever, the parent body of um, of Ben and Jerry's action that was taken also in Texas, Arizona, Virginia, other states as well. Uh, so sometimes, you know, they, I mean, and this should be something that should be universally condemned is the boycott of Israel, the, the singling out of Israel, and BDS engages in came, campaigns to delegitimize Israel. I'm afraid that people don't take it seriously enough. It's, the economic impact is not the primary issue. It's the political impact. It's the giving a, a legitimate expression to an illegitimate point of view. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything Israel does or its policies. This is about Israel's right to exist. You know that the it seems every day, and I'm sure you get this, every day there is some group that has to do with the title of Jews or Zionism or defending Israel or peace, whatever it is. Every day they're announcing a panel with some outrageous people on that panel. And they're, or they're announcing guest speakers who do not belong in a forum like that. And it, it just it's nonstop. It is nonstop, and it's especially true on the campuses, which don't, isn't always visible to the general populace. You see it if it's, um, you know, they take out ads in the paper, but you don't see the ads for the events that are taking place on campuses across the country. And it's like whack-a-mole, you know, you hit one down yeah. there, and, and then it pops up somewhere else. Universities that have taken uh, steps against it, but most, you know, are hide behind the free speech and academic freedom. But they don't talk about the academic freedom to bring pro-Israel speakers or to, to protect the rights of Jewish students on campuses. And that's why we have engaged in many Jewish organizations are working together to try to counter it and to protect Jewish students, provide legal counsel uh, and other things, because this is not to be dismissed. This is, uh, they found this vehicle as a way that they can carry out their political objectives against Israel, against Jews, including those with Jew in their name, 
um, yeah. who obviously don't care. Yeah. Uh, what gets me, and I don't know if you'd agree with me on this one or not, but uh, because sometimes you'll, you might say that they have a counterbalance and are able to actually provide another side, but it, what gets me is that there are panelists who I, I'm shocked are, are, are willing to appear with with these other panelists that we're describing, but again, you might say that you know that they feel that they're there to you know to, to, to present a balanced point of view or to present I don't know you know a defense of Israel. Um, I, I don't know. It just, it's just shocking to me that in some of these cases, uh, people I wouldn't expect to appear with those types of speakers are in fact doing so. I think that's exactly their reasoning, and that that you don't leave the field open, and that for those students who come with an open mind, let's say, or, or audiences that come with an open mind, they got to give them a counter voice. But you know, it is a debate each time about whether people should or should not participate in in those kind of uh, events, and and you know, it's a decision that has to be made on an individual basis, both by the people and for the particular events that are are. Uh, being sponsored legitimate to question what happened to Darius sin or not it's legitimate to discuss it but it was so distorted and you know became a rallying point right. uh against israel and you know places like the u.n uh exploit it and you know we're facing now the u.n human rights council is being asked by the palestinians to devote five million dollars a year and to hire 25 people for permanent investigation of israel the united states is proposing Two and a half million uh, and five people. Uh, it should be zero people and zero dollars. This is outrageous. And the fact that U.S. abstained on the vote in the U.N. is disappointing. Uh, but the, the idea that one country will come under permanent investigation is, is so ludicrous. So the U.N. then legitimizes a lot of the, the criticism, the attacks, etc. by this. We see the UNESCO. We see the textbooks. They still use UNRWA. Uh, so when the international body engages in this kind of stuff, we shouldn't be surprised by the ramifications in, in parts of the world afterwards. You're just back from Israel, so I can't uh, end without asking you, um, are you getting the impression there that uh, Naftali Bennett has a strong government, a stronger-than-was government? How would you classify it? You know, it, it, it is a, it's lasted and it got through the budget. That was a critical right. uh, stage. People... I think have aren't looking at an election soon. They want stability. I don't think it's, it's just about Bennett or Lapid. It's that they want stability. They want a stable government. Uh, they, uh, there's a lot of opposition within Likud to Netanyahu. There, there's opposition in other ways, too, that it's a fragile government, and every one of the parties holds the government over uh, you know, particular interests or special interests that they have. You see what the uh, Arab parties were able to get in terms of funding, huge amounts of funding and assistance. So it's, it's, there's no guarantee with it. I think it lasted longer than a lot of people predicted so far. Yeah. Now they're talking, and he has talked about the fact that they will actually go through with the uh, uh, midterm uh, change. But in Israel, you know, there's no guarantees. There are issues that could could bring down the government, and the the you know the changes in the religious areas and other areas. All of them are are very. Um, every one of them could become somewhat contentious. Although there seems to be consensus amongst the larger population for wanting uh, some of these changes. I'm starting to believe that uh, Israeli media doesn't like any of them. <laughs> it's true because that's what and the American media too they play the negatives they never right. will talk up the positives because that's not what sells newspapers that's mm-hmm. not what media and in Israel it, the media is very politicized as increasingly media here is yeah 
Um, next week is Friday of Thanksgiving. I think I'll be here. You'll let me know if you want to do an update at that point. And I appreciate happy, it. Happy turkey to everyone. Yes. And especially a good Shabbos. And-, <laughs> and a good Shabbos. And let's appreciate that we have the United States of America. We can live in freedom and luxury. And let's hope it lasts for a while. Friday morning broadcast. My thanks to Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Friday's weekly update here at JMM. Again, we'll let you know during the week if there'll be a Thanksgiving weekend weekly update or not. If not, then obviously you'll hear it during Hanukkah.